Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind? Welcome, neighbors, to a brand new radio show for Folk U Radio. It is the Reporters Roundtable, where we go in-depth on today's big issues from a small community perspective, with the journalists and commentators that are researching and writing about them from within your communities. Today's topic is fish farms and seaweed production. By June 2022, the entire region must be free of open net salmon farms. After that, no more licenses will be issued. On one hand, this issue can look like environment against industry. But as one looks deeper, it's more complicated. Many NGOs, First Nations, and fisher people called for the closure of open pen fish farming because of the damage it was found to cause the local marine environment and to wild fish stocks. The Cohen Commission on the Decline of Fraser River Sockeye in 2012 said the Discovery Islands acts as a bottleneck along wild salmon migration routes, and eliminating the fish farms was a key recommendation. On the other hand, the 19 fish farm corporations along BC's Discovery Islands say that the loss could affect hundreds of jobs. Questions and nuances abound. How much damage to the environment and wild fish stocks? How many jobs are really at stake? Were local communities properly consulted? And what does it mean to truly listen and bring the First Nation communities to the table in decision-making? How does government and local community work together to retrain and rebuild industries that could be more in harmony with local communities and the environment? And with an ease and timelessness to an outsider that seems nothing short of miraculous, suddenly seaweed farming seems like it may be all this and more. We are super lucky today to be joined by Roy Hales, the editor of Cortez Currents, and Benny Paul, the local journalism initiative reporter for Campbell River, who reports mostly on North Vancouver Island. Rochelle Baker, also reporting with the local journalism initiative for the National Observer. And Ashley Zarbatani, our new Folk You political and climate commentator. Hello, all, and thank you so much for joining us. Starting with Rochelle Baker with the National Observer, a quick summary of the fish farm situation as it is now, where we are today, how we got here. Yeah, it's a big topic. Where we are now, I think most people are aware the... Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan has recently made the decision to phase out fish farms in the Discovery Islands, as you said, a bottleneck for juvenile salmon migrating through. And where we are is with the fallout 
from that decision. Clearly, there are people who are thrilled with the decision and lots of people who are not as far as a general picture is concerned. A broad overview of the topic, it's complex. I guess that's what I first want to say about the topic in general and the debate on fish farms. Everything folks argue from opposite sides of the issue or the debate, yes or no, to open net pens is true to an extent. The issue, like most issues, are just simply more nuanced and tangled than they actually appear to be. So, Benny... With the First Nations communities, many of them called for the closure of these fish farms. But then after the fish farms were closed, you quoted in one of your articles, Chief Roberts said, so even though it appears that the minister got it right this time, the risk is that nothing will change. And he's talking in particular about the consultation process and the lack of consultation or meaningful consultation with the First Nations. You know, some of the terminologies and the narratives that we've been hearing all along in the consultation process is to do with reconciliation and the whole concept of United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, etc. So when the narrative came along first that the decision had been made, it was Minister Jordan saying that, you know, it was done in consultation with the seven First Nations that hold title in the area. Now, while talking to Chris Roberts and uh, the Vivekai chief, uh, we realized that there were other nations involved in this. And, uh, you know, it, it just came simply to the term that it's their area, their territory, but consultations were made on, say, a regional bandwagon was brought in, right? So when we're talking that the decision per se, everybody in the community is happy with it because it matches the mandate of saving wild salmon, et cetera. But the concept of reconciliation and, you know, talking about sovereignty in their territory is also a fact that they get to come to that decision by themselves. So there were a lot of, like, I think even Rochelle mentioned earlier that it's a very complex process, right? It's not a black and white issue. There's a lot of areas in between that need to be addressed. And it was about how could Indigenous-led conservation come in? How could First Nations uh, provide a solution for this? Um, They were looking at other options like probably land-based containments or closed containments, etc. Or how could the province, how could they try to... Uh, save an economic catastrophe from taking place and all these things. So it was it was not, from what I understand, it was not a very deeply consulted process. It was as though, you know, a political mandate was present out there. And unfortunately, like the chief mentioned, it, it comes back to the fact that the First Nations are used again, right? So in, in those aspects, the nations wanted the fish farms out of their oceans for a very long time. And so did the community. So that was the mandate. But um, science-based, I'm not going to get deep into it because I'm no science expert myself. So, and that's always like a polarized debate on both sides, right? So just not getting into it. I think we have to respect the fact that if it's their territory and if that's what they wanted, that has to be respected at all ends. So despite the fact that the federal government portrays that, you know, that they've done this, the question that everybody needs to be asking is, 
was it done correctly? Was it done in such a way that, you know, it was, what's the whole thing? Uh, the phrase dog and pony show kind of a thing. So <laughs> it literally feels like that. It's kind of sad. But again, it's like, it's not about blame games and it's not about, you know, um, all other mandates out here. It's about was the process done right? Because this is the beginning of uh, a series of, you know, processes within not only within BC, but within Canada, there are bigger questions to ask as to whether we're really adhering to the correct principles of UNDRIP or reconciliation per se. So, yeah. Thank you so much. That's uh, really helps explain something that I'm sure is nuanced and challenging on lots of fronts. Roy, from an environmental perspective, Roy, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about your reporting on what we believe, what we're supposed to be led to believe about how ecologically damaging fish farms are or are not? First of all, really be sure that uh, the fish farms are causing the salmon declines, or should I say how, to what extent they are, because there's so many other things that are also impacting salmon runs. For example, the recent chum run on Cortez Island, where 1,050 fish returned to Basil Creek, but a few dozen to the, all the rest of the creeks on Cortez Island, and the DFO said the problem was a new blob forming in the ocean, and ocean temperatures are almost three degrees higher within that blob. So they were saying that the salmon that returned to Whaletown Creek, James Creek, and Hanson Creek passed through that blob, and that's why most of the fish didn't return. They died. And one of the reasons I find this explanation easy to accept is a few about five years ago, I covered a story from the Columbia and Snake Rivers in Washington state where the, there was a similar temperature rise in the river and 96% uh, of the returning adult sockeye, that's a quarter of a million of them, died before they could uh, get beyond the lower granite dam. And a study from the University of Victoria found that we were very close to a similar uh, cata uh, catastrophe in BC and I was actually talking to the researcher about the possibility on Cortez Island. And they're saying that uh, after studying four centuries of tree rung data, they're actually predicting that we're going to have a mega-sized trout. And um, it will be imperiling the fish runs in that very same way. And that's five years before uh, the present. There's also unexpected climate uh, change impacts like the Butte Inlet landslide, which uh, Rochelle covered. Uh, there's also problems with the dams. And we know that, um, for example, on the Klamath River in Washington state, I used to have one of the largest uh, fish runs in the United States before they put six dams on there a century ago. And now that they're pulling the dams off, the fish are returning. They, they'd almost gone away. We also know that there's problems with uh, floodgates, for example, in the Fraser Valley, where they're uh, chewing up the uh, access that the salmons have to their stream so that they can't return as much. There's problems with culverts. There's all kinds of things. There's overfishing that are impacting the uh, salmon returns. So even, it's really hard to say how much is um, salmon farms. To some extent, fish farm people would argue that it's not them at all. And they can point to places where they have done stream restoration, like on the Oyster River, and the salmon runs have come back. Roy, talk a little bit about how you balance then 
the kind of complexity of any sort of ecological issue and the and trying to pinpoint one single cause of something as big as the decline in wild salmon populations. I just try to get the best, clearest picture from whoever I'm interviewing that I can, and I'm looking for the keys that can help me understand it. Like when both Alexander Morton and Krobish talked about a decline in uh, sea lice in um, the Broughton archipelago ever since um, the number of fish farms has gone down. They've told me two things, and one of them is actually that the, with fewer fish farms, there wasn't that problem. There's one thing I wanted to say, too, and that's going over to sea lice. I'm sorry for running into a rabbit hole. I'm going to turn that over to anybody else who wants to comment. Roy, just to make sure we got that clear, we understand that sea lice is an issue, that sea lice does seem to be in part spread by open net fish farms. And it seems to be a worsened problem where there's higher concentrations of fish farms. But then there was also a report done recently that said that maybe the sea lice and the open net fish farming are not actually as connected as we thought. The report was me going into the fish farm data, trying to figure out what these guys were saying. And I found that it's true. I was looking at 15 different farms and the reports over a year. There were some farms that were repeatedly violating that um, they would have four or five times they had to be deloused because instead of three lice per fish, which is the limit that DFO has set, in one case you had 20. But there were other farms Phillips Arms, which happens to be the fish farm that I visited, never got close to two. And there was a bunch of them like that. So I guess I'm saying there's dirty fish farms and there's clean fish farms. Yeah, okay, this this is great. And getting into the nuance, too, of how we begin to parse whether every fish farm is made equally. What about, Rochelle, do you have anything to say about whether you've seen kind of better or worse examples out there? Well, I, of course don't get out to the sites where we're dependent on the data provided by DFO and each company on their farms and their sea lice reports. But I do believe though that not as we've seen, the, the debate being presented right now is almost like we're shutting down fish farming everywhere, but it is actually a limited shutdown or phase out. It's happening in this region. And I think it goes less are are one particular farm or the other problematic or not. I think that there probably needs to be an approach of and a discussion about, and it's complex again, uh, once you bring in First Nations and community concerns and social development and things like that. But maybe fish farming isn't a good industry to take place in the Discovery Islands, but perhaps under other circumstances, it could take place elsewhere. Right now, the debate is almost couched as in it's being shut down entirely because of this decision in the Discovery Islands. However, it is actually a regional approach to it, um, which you can question whether or not that's a good idea because wild salmon, of course, are a, a provincial or even global concern. But having said that, um, yes, uh, and it might not even be individual farms. Certainly, there will be bad practices at perhaps an individual farm, but it could be even individual uh, ecological conditions around that farm too. Um, there's 
particularly warm water there. The conditions, the local conditions have created, you know, algal blooms. It's, I think though, it's, it's too difficult to say perhaps that certainly in the short term that aquaculture shouldn't be happening. Um, I think we need aquaculture. Uh, seaweed's probably not going to be a perfect fit to replace fish farming. Folks want to move it on land, which could take care of some of the environmental concerns, yet there are other environmental concerns attached to that in terms of increased energy use, uh, water, uh, you know, what happens with waste and water on those large land facilities. The ecological footprint is actually greater. So it might not be an either or situation. So let's talk a little bit more about that because the federal government, when they originally, the Trudeau government, when they originally committed to phasing out open net farming, talked about transitioning open net salmon farms to some other form of fish farming, such as land-based agriculture systems. And BC seems has at least one of these in Kutera, BC, which is a land-based system. But the industry, the open net fish farm industry, seems to be very opposed to this. They say that it's expensive and that if they were to go to this model of land-based fish farming, that they would want to take their farms closer to the final markets, which I found particularly interesting because then I also saw in other articles that you guys had written that I had been reading that the industry then also said, well, this timing is so awful. We were ill-prepared and people want access to local foods. So it felt to me that this industry then, the open net fish farm industry, is in part based on being perhaps artificially cheap compared to the more ecologically safe alternatives or to wild fishing. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about what you were seeing out there as far as how much of this is just the the big corporations kind of be being whiny about being forced to <laughs> change and how much of this is a true concern. So I'm, I'm a bit of a realpolitik approach to the world. I believe as any company, as any for-profit company, will make their decisions based on profit maximization, like any industry. So uh, fish farm companies aren't particularly evil. <laughs> they operate like any business. They will fight for unless regulated or mandated, or they see it being in their financial benefit, will continue to farm in the oceans the cheapest way possible with the largest profit margin. So moving on to land, moving on to land will definitely eat into their profit margins. Some of their arguments against moving on to the land, again, like I said a little bit earlier, are certainly true. They have concerns about the quality of the meat, uh, it's certainly in a larger ecological footprint from an energy point of view in terms of electricity, water, um, land, eating up land as a resource. But having said that, nobody is counting 
or evaluating the ecological impacts that fish farms and, and putting a value to it, the costs, the environmental costs, because that's very difficult to do, the environmental costs associated to the public or to nature or even to the fish farms themselves, there are no costs to open net pen systems, right? To dump waste or f- excess feed or oxygen depletion in that given area. There are no ecological costs associated. Calculated in terms of the impacts on the environment, and there are no costs passed on to the fish farms. So I guess any industry would probably react the same way. Why would they want to move on to land where it's going to be more expensive and cut into their profit margins? And until they're regulated that way, or they see, let's say, there's a premium that they can add to the price of their fish for going greener, so to speak, I don't think it'll happen voluntarily unless they see the writing on the wall. Uh, Benny, do you have anything to add? First of all, in my personal opinion, I just think that the writing has been on the wall for a very long time. Like for everyone, including the federal government, the provincial government, the aquaculture companies, because it's it's been like a global phenomenon, right? And it's not something that, it, I don't know, it, it personally didn't come as a shock to me because it was something that was expected. But that being said, It's the whole narrative construction around these things, right? And that is really what's causing all the trouble for maybe even authorities to reach a consensus about what really is the problem or how can we solve it in that sense. But I've always wondered this, right? Because aquaculture companies have been one of the most regulated. And I'm not trying to Uh, take sides with anyone out here. This is just one of the questions that's gone through my mind. And like I said, I'm not, I'm no expert on science. These industries have been one of the most regulated outlets out here. And it's, it's kind of like also a question to ask whether their science is valid and whether the narrative that we're constructing of, you know, like Rochelle said, evil corporations, I, I personally don't think they're evil corporations as well. But again, when we're coming back to the whole concept of competitive advantage, Now, these companies were running on a competitive advantage in BC's waters when it comes to supplying almost, say, 60% of their product to U.S. markets or global markets, et cetera, right? And it was, again, cheap, and they were getting profits out of it. And these containments are probably the future of agriculture in a lot of countries. Like, I'm personally, uh, I've lived in the Middle East for a very long time. So when I've heard of projects in UAE, Uh, you know, land-based containments coming up, etc. We're talking about a place where gas is cheaper than a bottle of water, and they've managed to create, you know, uh, land-based or closed containments in the Middle East. But that being said, again, it is very, it's, it's high on capital. So for these companies, for these aquaculture companies to move towards that direction, when we're talking of a lot more competitors or entities, corporate markets that have already come up globally that have entered the world of sustainable salmon farming right now, it's going to be a huge shocker for them in terms of their marketing strategy and, you know, all those things. So it's it's not that it's not feasible, but to get there is like, you have to see, like, you know, we're talking of global leaders, uh, global market leaders in Atlantic salmon farming will now probably be forced to step back because 
they probably don't have the infrastructure for it or they've been late in developing the infrastructure for it. So that's like a huge profit margin that we're talking about, right? So in BC, again, we do not really have the facility and the infrastructure. And this is another question that probably we should be asking all levels of governments, right, from the local government levels to the federal government level. And, you know, like with the closure, they've come up with the whole blue economy plan, etc. But why weren't these plans implemented in the beginning so that, you know, the phasing out could have been easier or even the industry could have probably, you know, worked together and come forward. And now, like, you know, you're in a Pandora's mess kind of a thing. And now it's like you're throwing everything. So it's, I understand. I understand BC stand in this. I understand the government stand in this. And I understand communities stand in this. And I deeply understand the whole environmental aspect of this, right? So again, it's like policy mandated, politically motivated. What are the aspects in this? But talking about feasibility is, we can debate about it. But what's the real solution at the current moment? Because we are talking about the reality of people losing their jobs. Island economy is mostly uh, resource-based, right? And and the island has definitely had its run-in with uh, resource-based economies collapsing with the whole forestry aspect and, you know, all those things. So it's like the same history repeating itself again and again. And there was no plan to diversify the economy beforehand, like, you know, I mean, the solution should have been thought of before we reached at it. So, yeah, feasibility, definitely that can be done. It's not that it cannot be done, but there are other aspects of competitive advantage that we're talking about. And it's like, are they too late? Did BC really lose out on its chance, you know, for being market leaders with these industries and retaining the industries within the province? Can I just jump in there? This is Ashley. Uh, I think that's such a really... Good point to make, Benny, especially because when we talk about our economy in this region, we need to recognize that a lot of those jobs are going to be outsourced out of BC because we just don't have the the facilities for that. And I think it's also really important to, from a climate standpoint, to recognize that the greenhouse gas emissions that they're talking about that could come out of these land-based containments are equivalent to uh, the size of North Vancouver in terms of energy usage. It was something like 22 million kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions that it would take to replace these fish farms. So this idea that there's ecologically safe alternatives is kind of a false one. We don't have that. So where do we go with that in mind when we're talking about food security and economic regional development? which is where I get really excited uh, or and why I get really excited about seaweed farming because it's so it's such an awesome opportunity for our region. It creates food for our region. It creates an agricultural amendment. It acts to sequester carbon. So I, I, I think that we need to be looking at the seaweed farming industry and how we could talk about uh, how to bring that in and transfer workers to that industry. And then there's the whole other thing that Benny was mentioning is that the government didn't really have a strategy for for incorporating these workers into new into new industries. They're just leaving them behind, and it's it is a it's a repetition of something we've seen over and over again, where workers are just left in the dust. There's no contingency plan for them, 
And that's another aspect of it. So not only are we talking about potentially exporting away jobs from BC, but what are we going to do for these workers who are left behind? There has been some good news on that. Apparently, uh, four of the seven First Nations communities who were most impacted by the closing of the fish farms, but who had also been asking for the closing of the fish farms, have since started negotiations with Apparently, it's called the Reconciliation Framework Agreement for Fishery Resources. And the government, the federal government, has agreed to put a great deal of money to help create an agriculture industry that is in greater harmony with that community and its needs and resource base. Yes. So talks about these were ongoing very soon after uh, the announcements were made. I wasn't sure if resources were promised yet. We haven't heard, I haven't heard about that yet. But from what the chiefs have told me, a couple of them, the government, in terms of, you know, how they're going to navigate this process. And yes, this is news to me that the federal government, but is, has that to do with uh, the funding that was announced yesterday, the provincial funding or the federal funding for the communities that came in yesterday and day before? I think so, but I'm not actually sure. Okay. So in other words, new things are changing all the time and maybe in maybe in better ways. Things are changing. And I think there's been a lot of mounted pressure on this particular topic. Right. So how are they going to, again, do this the proper way? Or that seems like the question out here. I mean, it's 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 interesting how everything is an open ended question in this process rather than, you know, a solution mostly. So. One of the things I really wanted to get some clarity on, Roy, was we keep hearing these huge job numbers, like 1,500 people who are out of work because of the closing. But then I've also looked at numbers that were basically saying most of these fish farms had, you know, a dozen or two employees. I believe there was something like 572 direct jobs. And uh, talking to some of the guys there, you're talking about five to eight people a shift. You're talking about 19 farms, but you're also talking about processing plants. You're talking about people coming in and maintenance and stuff. And why they say 1,500 is because you have other jobs. You have uh, transportation companies. You have all kinds of different uh, businesses that are affected. You actually see quite a few of them on the BC uh, Farming uh, Association website. And I did want to mention that, um, how do you put it? The... uh, Fish farms were identified as one of the three economic pillars uh, for first dollars in Campbell River, that and forestry, and um, what was the third one again? Tourism. And I think they should actually count all the money that we get from pensions and what have you, but they don't. So it will have a big impact. That wasn't what I put my hand up for. Oh, yes, when Binny was talking about uh, getting down to the table. And um, when I was interviewing John Paul Fraser, the president of the BC Farmers Association. I just about dropped out of my chair when he started praising the Broughton uh, process, where uh, they were actually talking about phasing out 17 fish farms, but he's praising the process of everyone getting down to the table and talking about how to do it and uh, saying how that's what we should have done here. And that's what makes me think they would be open to that kind of process here. And I'd actually like to see a process where you had uh, every, all the stakeholders from industry to First Nations to local government to what have you down at the same table. And is that possible? I don't know. Can you t- explain what the Broughton process was? 
uh, even though they were the 17 farms had to be removed from the area, the uh, First Nations, the uh, fish farms, the government, I'm not sure how many other people were involved, sat down, they talked about how to do it. In our case, one of the problems we have is fish farms with a five-year cycle, like on the farms themselves, and we're springing 18 months on them. So, of course, there's problems there. There's, uh, they don't know what to do with all the fish and stuff. In this case, they worked it out. How can we do this? When can we do this? Does anyone else have thoughts they want to add to this part of the conversation? Rochelle? Yeah, I mean, some of the stories that I've been doing lately, aside from, I think Vinny has a point, we're not going to be on land inside a couple of years. Uh, the technology isn't developed enough. The facilities aren't there. So in the meantime, you know, what are we going to do? Does that mean we regionalize the approach? We can't just abandon aquaculture just in terms of food security worldwide. And and I think that the aquaculture happened in a even though it seems like it's very intense and it is on the individual farms, the the aquaculture isn't taking place on a super intensive level where entire bays are filled with farms. But what some of the stories that I've been doing is lately and as interesting, but again, it can't be implemented tomorrow is the notion of co-cultivation. Cultivating other species along with salmon farms in order to mitigate some of the environmental concerns that these species could possibly perform ecological services not to eliminate all the ecological impacts, but at least ameliorate them to a certain extent. So farming seaweed with salmon, uh, with sea cucumbers, with shellfish, with sea urchins, you know, to pick up stuff that's falling to the seabed, you know, heavier waste falling to the seabed, seaweed absorbing nitrogen and phosphorus from fish byproducts or urine or waste in the water column. You know, all of these are exciting, but again, like land-based farming in, in Canada are really sort of in the research and development stage rather than ready for commercialization. But just like land-based systems, it won't happen until either the social pressure or regulatory environment or government policy puts it in place in order to force change, really, because until things are regulated or fish farm companies see it as more advantageous to their bottom line to move on land or take up other forms of aquaculture, they won't do so. This is CKTZ Cortez Community Radio 89.5 FM. And today on Folk U Radio, we're doing a reporter's roundtable, and what I've done is I've asked some of my favorite reporters or commentators from the area to come together. We're all sitting together in this virtual room, and I'm getting to do what I like to do best, which is ask smart people hard questions about the big issues of the day. And what I especially like about the group we've got together is that they are talking about the big issues 
of the day from a small community perspective. Thank you so, so much for all of you for tuning in and most especially for our incredible guests. We have with us Roy Hales, editor of Cortez Currents, Benny Paul, who's reporting through the Local Journalism Initiative in Campbell River, Rochelle Baker, also through that same initiative with the National Observer, and Ashley Zarbatani, my folk use new political and climate commentator. I am your host, Manda Ofox Gillespie. We did have one question that came in. Well, definitely my very favorite listener, my mom. <laughs> who's listening all the way over in Ohio and when which is where I'm from and if you're from Ohio understanding the complexity of what is involved with open net fishing has taken a lot for me to kind of understand these differences and my mom asks that she has been following greenwave.org and she also heard through this ecological group called Bioneers about regenerative ocean farming. And she's wondering, what is that? Have any of you heard of that? And is that a possibility for us? Rochelle? I haven't heard of regenerative ocean farming. I'm guessing that might be a better name for IMTA, which is, I think, integrated multi-trophic um, aquaculture. But essentially, um, uh, so I'm going to say no, I don't know what regenerative farming is. Regenerative is, you know, you try to use the natural ecosystem, which is kind of the idea between, I use the term co-cultivation to avoid the acronym, but essentially replicating the, the ecosystem or the food chain within the aquaculture environment. So as you might find in an ecosystem, you know, you have the fish eating creatures or food and their waste gets eaten by, you know, either a, a sea cucumber or a sea urchin and the water columns, smaller particles that don't fall to the sea floor are filtered by shellfish and or a, a chemical components like phosphorus or nitrogen get absorbed as fertilizer by seaweed. So perhaps that's what regenerative farming is. Ashley might have a better idea or Roy or Binny. The in terms of Green Wave, I believe that is a company, if I'm not mistaken, out in East Canada, who is essentially raising seaweed as a, an agricultural product. And this gets to something that Roy was asking about during the break, which is some of the kind of details of actually how gross fish farming can be if you're not going about it from a more ecological or a holistic perspective. Roy, did you want to talk a little bit about what you've seen in your reporting? Two things that really uh, were disturbing, and they're both videos. Have you seen Alexander Morton's video, Hard Evidence from the Inside? Because there were dozens of lethargic, they were almost eel-like looking salmon with long skinny bodies, and they were staring out to the edge of a net. And the reason I want to do this on a double frame is because right after she produced that, she thought it was a deadly disease that was spreading through fish farms. I have no idea how uh, many fish farms it is. She saw it in every pen. There were 10 of them. In her film, I saw maybe a dozen of these fish lined up, looking up against a 
uh, net. So you are definitely are talking about dozens. I that happened to be the very time, or just after that, marine harvest took me to look at uh, Philip's arm, where I walked into the uh, control room of their fish farm, and lo and behold, they've got all these cameras looking into every film, or pardon me, every pin. So I asked them if I could direct the cameras, and um, they said okay. So I looked around the edges of every pin, and uh, I didn't see anything like it. Didn't see a single deformed fish. Uh, none of them were looking at the nets. Why I'm bringing this up is going back to the idea of there being clean fish farms and some that have problems, like the uh, ones with lots of lice. I would like to know, because I do not hear these long eel-like uh, creatures discussed very often, I'd like to know how extensive that problem is, and I'd like to see it addressed, uh, regardless of the clean ones like the one I saw. For me, it was about three years in which I was kind of looking, double looking at Alexandra when she was saying things, because it was so unlike what I saw. And then I got to realize that there really are some fish farms that are clean, and that's the one I was shown. And there are some that have problems. Another thing I want to get to is a video. Another video, It's uh, in this case, it's uh, Tavish Campbell. And what he did is... Um, a lot of fish farms have been dumping their effluents into the ocean. And he took a camera down to two. One was in the Discovery Islands. It was uh, Raise a Fish Farm. And the other one was in Cleoquit Sound. And uh, you look at, you can find all these videos on my website too, by the way, on Cortez Currents. But anyways, you're looking at these massive clouds of bloody effluents. And it's like a cloud of blood just rising up through the water. And it was gross. And uh, during the last election, I was talking to Alexandra Morton, and she was telling me that this is a common problem. It isn't being addressed. I believe it's something that she's seeing that Providence could do it, but they're not looking at it right now. And I, I just, if you see the films about it, it's gross, and it does have to be addressed, no matter what you think about. Well, if we take the fish farms out of the water, uh, that would end the problem. But if some of them stay in, they've got to they gotta do something about these things. That's all I had to say. One of the things that I think sort of gets along with this or is hard to report on is that kind of small community aspect, right? Where we are sort of as these little communities are coming up against these bigger issues. You know, for instance, on our small island, we don't have open net fish farms here. What we do have is quite a bit of other versions of aquaculture. We are raising shellfish largely, and now suddenly we're looking into the possibility and have a partnership looking at seaweed and the possibility of doing seaweed production. And so I feel like mostly when I speak to people on this small island, they feel like closing down open net fish farms might help our actual local industries, help the aquaculture that we have here, help make it easier for the small f fishing people who are actually still making their living fishing who live here to perhaps have more fish in the sea, to find that their jobs just got a little easier. I live on Quadra. I think what you might be seeing in terms of a community stance on the issue will be whether or not you might be employed or involved in the fish farm industry against those who believe that there are ecological costs associated with fish farming. I think, and I've mentioned it before, that aquaculture, probably one thing that I would 
like to see is where aquaculture is dealt with at a, either a community or regional level for all sorts of different reasons. Not all First Nations have the same opinion about aquaculture. So some, or about salmon farming, for example, you know, it's a complex issue. I saw an interesting tweet from a First Nations person, and I'm sorry, I can't find the tweet, but, you know, he said, I'm, I'm not against wild salmon, I'm against. So I think there, there is some room for discussion around regional approaches to aquaculture, gathering stakeholders to come up with regional solutions. Just even from an environmental, when I say environmental, I don't mean environmental cost point of view, but each region has different environmental conditions. Having said that, you know, shellfish is something, shellfish aquaculture is intensive in this area in the Discovery Islands. I think people are excited by the notion that you can co-cultivate quite easily shellfish and seaweed, potentially getting two crops. Seaweed grows very quickly, so you can get more than one crop in the time or multiple crops in the time that it would take to raise shellfish. So it could diversify income. Seaweed won't be the answer for everybody, just in terms of even is it adequate? Is it ideal to grow everywhere for everyone? No. Infrastructure, just like processing infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, just like for salmon farming, will be an issue. Can you get your product to market? Can you grow enough of it to cover your costs? All those things are things to consider sort of at a regional or community level. Although there seem to be lots of great things going on with approaching seaweed as a potential crop, I think we'd have to be cautious to assume we can replace salmon farming with seaweed just in terms of you know, it's not a comparative food in terms of what it provides. Uh, seaweed has some protein in it, but it's not a protein like fish or shellfish are. The other thing about seaweed I would gather is potential profitability of seaweed, unless you're doing it in huge volumes, and the jobs that are attached to seaweed farming are likely to be a lot lower than fish farming. So we can't just substitute in seaweed farming with salmon farming. It won't, it won't work like that. But having said that, there is a huge potential and untapped potential around it. And we're seeing First Nations being, along with Cascadia, which is a larger organization, really being kind of leaders in exploring this as a potential new form of aquaculture, even right on Cortez with the Cahoos Nation. I wonder, Ashley, if you want to add anything to that. Well, I think that what Rochelle said about our need for a regional strategy that actually involves stakeholders is really important and key. We see that a lot of people were left out of the process. There wasn't due consultations with First Nations and workers. There wasn't a, a plan for transitioning workers. There wasn't a any plan for reshoring an economy here for our region. So I think going back to that essential first step of actually talking to 
the key stakeholders is really important. And then thinking about just our vision for a regional strategy of food security and regional economic regional development is really key. And I do think that seaweed has a, a key role to play in that. It's going to be really important in terms of mitigating the climate crisis. Uh, we see that seaweed farming can actually sequester carbon at 20 times the rate that land forests can. And it's also really important for stopping ocean acidification. So those are really important things that if we had, for example, a carbon trading system could be a potential source of revenue for our region. Uh, not only does it sequester carbon at 20 times the rate of a land forest, it also sequesters it long term. All of the seaweed, when it goes through its natural life cycle, sloughs off and sits at the bottom of the sea. So that's an amazing uh, sequestration process, uh, a living solution that we should be supporting and developing. And I think it's going to be key in any of our climate action plans that we develop for a region or here on Cortez, if as some of some people know, we're starting a, a climate action plan for Cortez. And I'm really hoping that that will be a big part of it. So yeah, I think that seaweed does play a really important role in our future. It might not completely uh, replace salmon because that, of course, like Rishal was saying, it's a completely different form of food, but it is some, it is a local food source that we could be increasing. And, and increasing is key there. We need to be growing it. We can't just replace it because it's already been impacted. And it actually found out recently that it plays a key role in helping wild salmon because certain types of seaweed actually acts as a shelter for wild salmon and other marine creatures. So we actually need to be restoring the original seaweed habitat and seaweed gardens that used to exist in these waters and that have been uh, stripped through industrial processes. Like eelgrass has disappeared because of Canada geese populations that are invasive <laughs> species that were brought here as a food source, but actually have become really overpopulated and then have ended up eating the eelgrass, which is really essential for the salmon. So when we talk about the ecological aspect, we have to think about bringing things into balance. And so when we talk about seaweed uh, as a food source, we need to talk about actually restoring what was there and then building up on it. And especially getting that carbon sequestration factor going. But I'm really excited to see all of these relationships that are happening between First Nations and uh, Cascadia, especially. They're starting these really cool projects here, right here in the gorge. And I, I think there's a big future for it, not only because it fights climate change, it's a local food source, which we need. And it's also got other potential benefits, like having a local agricultural amendment source. So I think that we should definitely talk about it. I love this idea that we could rebrand our extraction economies as being possible economies where one of our main industry is to be a carbon sink. <laughs> so I, I, I'm really liking that idea. And what are our other industrial potentials with seaweed? One of the top uses, I mean, we eat seaweed every day. Well, most of us, the larger population. 
you know, seaweed as a food additive or a cosmetics additive or, and this is, Cascadia will head in this direction as would a lot of seaweed producers. Besides being a whole food, seaweed is a thickener, an emulsifier. It's used in huge amounts of food in bakeries and dairy particularly. So that's the target market along with fertilizer, like you said. And potentially, of course, is they're exploring. Now there's lots of excitement around using seaweed as feed, not exclusively, but at least in some form or another for food, for fish farming, interestingly enough, and in cattle feed or perhaps other kinds of feed as well to reduce emissions is the idea behind cattle feed. We have to identify which seaweeds in Canada would be applicable. And again, I think it might be only a regional situation. It makes no sense to truck seaweed products to Alberta or Saskatchewan where you've got grain that grows regionally. I like the idea of what Ashley brought up and uh, that you mentioned, Manda, which is to looking at the economy differently as well, rather it being extractive. If there's recognition of treating seaweed a little similarly, like for carbon trading, like we could be cultivating seaweed not for extraction, which then limits its value as a carbon sink, but could we be cultivating seaweed for other reasons, just the way we would keep forests in the ground in order to capture carbon and valuing that, adding value or incentive to that ecological service rather than just assuming it should be for free. When if we could attach rather than cutting down a tree or planting seaweed, could we attach a value to keeping it in the ground or growing it? I love that, Rochelle. What a, what a cool idea. Um, and what a cool way for small communities to be involved or to be important in, in our national strategy. Certainly, I like the idea that we could be more than just the place where you cut down all your trees. And, um, you know, <laughs> and does anybody have a last thought that they want to make sure that they add, and in particular on the kind of hope for the future? for our aquaculture industry, for our small communities, when it comes to finding true resolution around complicated issues with fish farming? I I just have one thought, which is uh, going back to something that Rochelle mentioned earlier. The bottom line for corporations is to be profit oriented. And so one of the concerns with seaweed farming is that it might not actually be profitable. But as we've talked about, it actually is really important for fighting the climate crisis. So we should think about ways to make it happen outside of the profit-oriented framework of having a corporation lead the process. Uh, One of the things that I've been thinking about recently a lot and reading about in Seth Klein's book, A Good War, is the need to create crown corporations to do the jobs that private corporations won't do. So He talks a lot about how during the Second World War, uh, the government actually created 28 crown corporations to just do arms and munitions supplies and coordinate the war effort and lead the restructuring of the economy at home across Canada. And how we can learn from that 
uh, when we're actually addressing the climate crisis and filling in the gaps that private enterprise can't or won't do. And just the need to recognize that we're in a climate emergency, so we have to act like it and do what it takes to survive. And I, I think that there's a great potential for a crown corporation in our, that is dedicated to an economic regional development strategy focusing on aquaculture and seaweed farming, improving our shellfish industry here, safeguarding it with the seaweed that fights ocean acidification. Just having that integrated approach, it needs to be led by an institution that isn't profit-oriented. And I think there's a lot of potential for that. I'd like to close with all of you by giving us a hint or a clue of what's next. What are you writing about now or getting geared up to write about in your communities? You don't need to go in depth. We just want sort of the headline of what we can be looking for and maybe where we can follow you. I'm doing a political piece right now. And it's uh, an ongoing conflict, but it's also a question of the extent that the regional directors uh, participate in the decision pro uh, process on the budgets. And um, our regional director said for the first time in 13 years, she couldn't uh, vote for a budget because she couldn't see enough details to know what she's voting on. So that's what I'm looking at. And I happen to know that people can find you at CortezCurrents.ca. How about Benny? What are you working on next? Well, I found a very happy story about this German couple. They set sailing around the world and they were at sea for the past two, three years or something. And then COVID happened. So it was a very interesting way as to how they found themselves in Canada and how the opinion has changed about um, life and Canada in general. So, yeah, that's going to be the one that I'm going to be working on next week. The Campbell River Mirror. Rochelle. I'll continue to explore this, this notion of regenerative aquaculture, I guess. Is, that's a nice term. It's better than IMTA. I'm hoping to look at the lowly sea cucumber and how it might provide some e ecological services alongside fish farms, aquaculture in general, you know, new emerging technologies or options. I typically have a couple of marine science stories in the hopper at any given time. Thank you so much for this amazing team. There are dozens of articles that have been written on this issue. And so that's why we kind of consolidated it down into just over an hour so that have you not read them all, you can still kind of get the high level of what's going on in your community. I highly recommend you go and dig out more reporting by Rochelle Baker from the National Observer, Benny Paul with the Campbell River Mirror. Roy Hales with Cortez Currents and Ashley Zarbatani, who's now our new commentator with Folk U, but who you can also find occasionally at Cortez Currents. Thank you all so much for today. And thank you listeners for always being there. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folkyou.com.
folkfolk.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folk-U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can't.